0: How will Captain Morgan save his fellow captain, who is being held prisoner by the Spanish Vice Admiral? Howard Pyle, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. Many, many thanks to our financial supporters who pitch in every month to help us keep the lights on. If you enjoy the show, please sign up to be a supporter for as little as $5 a month. We'll give you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you prefer listening on YouTube, our channel is now up to date and will continue to be so. Welcome to Pirate Summer. Today, we have a story taken from Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates. Howard Pyle was first and foremost an artist. He taught for several years at what became Drexel University and many noteworthy artists studied under him, including N.C. Wyeth and Frank Schoonover. Pyle is credited with establishing what has come to be known as the modern stereotype pirate attire. Since there wasn't much to draw upon as far as historical documentation as to what pirates actually wore, Pyle borrowed largely from gypsy garments and styles to create the pirate look we know today. It's been criticized as being wildly impractical for actual sailoring. He wrote and illustrated several books for young adults, including The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood and a four-volume set on the life of King Arthur. He breathed new life into children's literature, bringing a solid artistic background to his illustrations, raising the genre to a new level. While today's story features Captain Henry Morgan, It is a total work of fiction. And now, With the Buccaneers, by Howard Pyle. With the Buccaneers. Being an account of certain adventures that befell Henry Mostyn, under Captain H. Morgan, in the year 1665-66. One. Although this narration has more particularly to do with the taking of the Spanish vice-admiral in the harbour of Portobello, and of the rescue therefrom of the Sieur Simon, his wife and daughter, the adventure of which was successfully achieved by Captain Morgan, the famous buccaneer, we shall nevertheless premise something of the earlier history of Master Harry Mostyn, whom you may, if you please, consider as the hero of the several circumstances recounted in these pages. In the year 1664, our hero's father embarked from Portsmouth, in England, for the Barbados, where he owned a considerable sugar plantation. Thither, to those parts of America, he transported with himself his whole family, of whom our master Harry was the fifth of eight children, a great lusty fellow as little fitted for the church, for which he was designed, as could be. At the time of this story, though not above sixteen years old, Master Harry Mostyn was as big and well-grown as many a man of twenty, and of such a reckless and daredevil spirit, that no adventure was too dangerous or too mischievous for him to embark upon. At this time, there was a deal of talk in those parts of the Americas, concerning Captain Morgan, and the prodigious successes he was having pirating against the Spaniards. This man had once been an indentured servant with Mr. Rolls, a sugar factor at the Barbados. Having served out his time, and being of lawless disposition, possessing also a prodigious appetite for adventure, he joined with others of his kidney, and purchasing a caravel of three guns, embarked fairly upon that career of piracy, the most successful that ever was heard of in the world. Master Harry had known this man very well, while he was still with Mr. Rolls, serving as a clerk at that gentleman's sugar wharf. A tall, broad-shouldered, strapping fellow, with red cheeks and thick red lips, and rolling blue eyes, and hair as red as any chestnut, Many knew him for a bold, gruff-spoken man, but no one at that time suspected that he had it in him to become so famous and renowned as he afterward grew to be. The fame of his exploits had been the talk of those parts for above a twelve-month, when, in the latter part of the year 1665, Captain Morgan, having made a very successful expedition against the Spaniards into the Gulf of Campeche, where he took several important purchases from the plate fleet, came to the Barbados, there to fit out another such venture and to enlist recruits. He and certain other adventurers had purchased a vessel of some 500 tons, which they proposed to convert into a pirate by cutting portholes for cannon and running three or four carronades across her main deck. The name of this ship, be it mentioned, was the Good Samaritan, as ill-fitting a name as could be for such a craft, which, instead of being designed for the healing of wounds, was intended to inflict such devastation as those wicked men proposed. Here was a piece of mischief exactly fitted to our hero's tastes. Wherefore, having made up a bundle of clothes, and with not above a shilling in his pocket, he made an excursion into the town to seek for Captain Morgan." There he found the great pirate, established at an ordinary, with a little court of ragamuffins and swashbucklers gathered about him, all talking very loud and drinking healths in raw rum as though it were sugared water. And what a fine figure our buccaneer had grown, to be sure! How different from the poor, humble clerk upon the sugar wharf! What a deal of gold braid! What a fine, silver-hilted Spanish sword! What a gay velvet sling, hung with three silver-mounted pistols. If Master Harry's mind had not been made up before, to be sure, such a spectacle of glory would have determined it. This figure of war, our hero asked to step aside with him, and when they had come into a corner, proposed to the other what he intended, and that he had a mind to enlist as a gentleman adventurer upon this expedition." Upon this, our rogue of a buccaneer captain burst out a-laughing, and fetching Master Harry a great thump upon the back, swore roundly that he would make a man of him, and that it was a pity to make a parson out of so good a piece of stuff. Nor was Captain Morgan less good than his word, for when the Good Samaritan set sail with a favouring wind for the island of Jamaica, Master Harry found himself established as one of the adventurers aboard. Could you but have seen the town of Port Royal, as it appeared in the year 1665, you would have beheld a sight very well worth while looking upon. There were no fine houses at that time, and no great counting houses built of brick, such as you may find nowadays, but a crowd of bored and wattled huts, huddled along the streets, and also gay with flags and bits of color, that Vanity Fair itself could not have been gayer. To this place came all the pirates and buccaneers that infested those parts, and men shouted and swore and gambled, and poured out money like water, and then maybe wound up their merrymaking by dying of fever. For the sky, in these torrid latitudes, is all full of clouds overhead, and as hot as any blanket— and when the sun shone forth it streamed down upon the smoking sands so that the houses were ovens and the streets were furnaces. So it was little wonder that men died like rats in a hole. But little they appeared to care for that, so that everywhere you might behold a multitude of painted women and Jews and merchants and pirates, gaudy with red scarves and gold braid and all sorts of odds and ends of foolish finery." all fighting and gambling and bartering for that ill-gotten treasure of the berobbed Spaniard. Here arriving, Captain Morgan found a hearty welcome and a message from the governor awaiting him, the message bidding him attend His Excellency upon the earliest occasion that offered. Whereupon, taking our hero, of whom he had grown prodigiously fond, along with him, our pirate went, without any loss of time, to visit Sir Thomas Maudiford, who was then the royal governor of all this devil's brew of wickedness. They found His Excellency seated in a great easy chair under the shadow of a slatted veranda, the floor whereof was paved with brick. He was clad, for the sake of coolness, only in his shirt, breeches, and stockings, and he wore slippers on his feet. He was smoking a great cigarro of tobacco, and a goblet of lime juice and water and rum stood at his elbow on the table. Here, out of the glare of the heat, it was all very cool and pleasant, with a sea breeze blowing violently in through the slats, setting them a-rattling now and then, and stirring Sir Thomas's long hair, which he had pushed back for the sake of coolness. The purport of this interview, I may tell you, concerned the rescue of one Le Sieur Simon, who, together with his wife and daughter, was held captive by the Spaniards. This gentleman adventurer, Le Sieur Simon, had, a few years before, been set up by the buccaneers as governor of the island of Santa Catarina. This place, though well fortified by the Spaniards, the buccaneers had seized upon, establishing themselves thereon, and so infesting the commerce of those seas that no Spanish fleet was safe from them. At last, the Spaniards, no longer able to endure these assaults against their commerce, sent a great force against the freebooters to drive them out of their island stronghold. This they did, retaking Santa Catarina, together with its governor, his wife and daughter, as well as the whole garrison of buccaneers." This garrison was sent by their conquerors, some to the galleys, some to the mines, some to no man knows where. The governor himself, Le Sieur Simon, was to be sent to Spain, there to stand his trial for piracy. The news of all this, I may tell you, had only just been received in Jamaica, having been brought thither by a Spanish captain, one Don Rodriguez Silvia, who was besides the bearer of dispatches to the Spanish authorities relating the whole affair. Such in fine was the purport of this interview. And as our hero and his captain walked back together from the governor's house to the ordinary, where they had taken up their inn, the buccaneer assured his companion that he proposed to obtain those dispatches from the Spanish captain that very afternoon, even if he had to use force to seize them. All this, you are to understand, was undertaken only because of the friendship that the governor and Captain Morgan entertained for Le Sieur Simon. And indeed, it was wonderful how honest and how faithful were these wicked men in their dealings with one another. For you must know that Governor Modiford and Le Sieur Simon and the Buccaneers were all of one kidney, all taking a share in the piracies of those times, and all holding by one another as though they were the honestest men in the world. Hence it was, they were all so determined to rescue Le Sieur Simon from the Spaniards. 3. Having reached his ordinary, after his interview with the governor, Captain Morgan found there a number of his companions, such as usually gathered in that place to be in attendance upon him. Some those belonging to the Good Samaritan, others, those who hoped to obtain benefits from him, others, those ragamuffins who gathered around him because he was famous and because it pleased them to be of his court and to be called his followers. For nearly always your successful pirate had such a little court surrounding him. Finding a dozen or more of these rascals gathered there, Captain Morgan informed them of his present purpose, that he was going to find the Spanish captain to demand his papers of him, and calling upon them to accompany him. With this following at his heels, our buccaneer started off down the street, his lieutenant, a Cornishman named Bartholomew Davis, upon one hand, and our hero upon the other. So they paraded the streets for the best part of an hour, before they found the Spanish captain. For whether he had got wind that Captain Morgan was searching for him, or whether finding himself in a place so full of his enemies he had buried himself in some place of hiding, it is certain that the buccaneers had traversed pretty nearly the whole town before they discovered that he was lying in a certain auberge kept by a Portuguese Jew. Thither they went, and thither Captain Morgan entered with the utmost coolness and composure of demeanor, his followers crowding noisily in at his heels. The space within was very dark, being lighted only by the doorway and by two large slatted windows or openings in the front. In this dark, hot place, not over-roomy at the best, were gathered twelve or fifteen villainous-appearing men, sitting at tables and drinking together, waited upon by the Jew and his wife. Our hero had no trouble in discovering which of this lot of men was Captain Sylvia, for not only did Captain Morgan direct his glance full of war upon him, but the Spaniard was clad with more particularity, and with more show of finery than any of the others who were there. Him Captain Morgan approached, and demanded his papers, whereunto the other replied with such a jabber of Spanish and English that no man could have understood what he said. To this Captain Morgan in turn replied that he must have those papers no matter what it might cost him to obtain them, and thereupon drew a pistol from his sling and presented it at the other's head. At this threatening action the innkeeper's wife fell a-screaming, and the Jew, as in a frenzy, besought them not to tear the house down about his ears. Our hero could hardly tell what followed only that all of a sudden there was a prodigious uproar of combat. Knives flashed everywhere, and then a pistol was fired so close to his head that he stood like one stunned, hearing someone crying out in a loud voice, but not knowing whether it was a friend or a foe who had been shot. Then another pistol shot so deafened what was left of Master Harry's hearing that his ears rang for above an hour afterward. By this time the whole place was full of gunpowder smoke, and there was the sound of blows and oaths and outcrying and the clashing of knives. As Master Harry, who had no great stomach for such a combat, and no very particular interest in the quarrel, was making for the door, a little Portuguese, as withered and as nimble as an ape, came ducking under the table and plunged at his stomach with a great long knife, which, had it affected its object, would surely have ended his adventures then and there. Finding himself in such danger, Master Harry snatched up a heavy chair and flinging it at his enemy, who was preparing for another attack, he fairly ran for it out of the door, expecting every instant to feel the thrust of the blade betwixt his ribs. A considerable crowd had gathered outside, and others, hearing the uproar, were coming running to join them. With these our hero stood, trembling like a leaf, and with cold chills running up and down his back like water at the narrow escape from the danger that had threatened him. Nor shall you think him a coward, for you must remember he was hardly sixteen years old at the time, and that this was the first affair of the sort he had encountered. Afterward, as you shall learn, he showed that he could exhibit courage enough at a pinch. While he stood there, endeavoring to recover his composure, while the tumult continued within, suddenly two men came running almost together out of the door, a crowd of the combatants at their heels. The first of these men was Captain Sylvia. The other, who was pursuing him, was Captain Morgan. As the crowd about the door parted before the sudden appearing of these, the Spanish captain, perceiving, as he supposed, a way of escape opened to him, darted across the street with incredible swiftness toward an alleyway upon the other side. Upon this, seeing his prey like to get away from him, Captain Morgan snatched a pistol out of his sling and, resting it for an instant across his arm, fired at the flying Spaniard, and that with so true an aim that, though the street was now full of people, the other went tumbling over and over all of a heap in the kennel, where he lay, after a twitch or two, as still as a log. At the sound of the shot and the fall of the man the crowd scattered upon all sides, yelling and screaming, and the street being thus pretty clear, Captain Morgan ran across the way to where his victim lay, his smoking pistol still in his hand, and our hero following close at his heels. Our poor Harry had never before beheld a man killed thus in an instant, who a moment before had been so full of life and activity, for when Captain Morgan turned the body over upon its back, He could perceive at a glance, little as he knew of such matters, that the man was stone dead. And indeed, it was a dreadful sight for him who was hardly more than a child. He stood, rooted, for he knew not how long, staring down at the dead face with twitching fingers and shuddering limbs. Meantime, a great crowd was gathering about them again. As for Captain Morgan he went about his work with the utmost coolness and deliberation imaginable, unbuttoning the waistcoat and the shirt of the man he had murdered with fingers that neither twitched nor shook. There were a gold cross and a bunch of silver medals hung by a whipcord about the neck of the dead man. This Captain Morgan broke away with a snap, reaching the jingling baubles to Harry, who took them in his nerveless hand and fingers "'that he could hardly close upon what they held. "'The papers Captain Morgan found in a wallet "'in an inner breast pocket of the Spaniard's waistcoat. "'These he examined one by one, "'and finding them to his satisfaction, "'tied them up again, "'and slipped the wallet and its contents into his own pocket. "'Then for the first time he appeared to observe Master Harry, "'who indeed must have been standing,' the perfect picture of horror and dismay, whereupon bursting out a laughing and slipping the pistol he had used back into its sling again, he fetched poor Harry a great slap upon the back, bidding him be a man, for that he would see many such sights as this. But indeed it was no laughing matter for poor Master Harry, for it was many a day before his imagination could rid itself of the image of the dead Spaniard's face and as he walked away down the street with his companions, leaving the crowd behind them and the dead body where it lay for its friends to look after, his ears humming and ringing from the deafening noise of the pistol shots fired in the close room and the sweat trickling down his face in drops, he knew not whether all that had passed had been real or whether it was a dream from which he might presently awaken. Four. The papers Captain Morgan had thus seized upon as the fruit of the murder he had committed must have been as perfectly satisfactory to him as could be. For having paid a second visit that evening to Governor Maudiford, the pirate lifted anchor the next morning and made sail toward the Gulf of Darien. There, after cruising about in those waters for about a fortnight without falling in with a vessel of any sort, At the end of that time they overhauled a caravel bound from Portobello to Cartagena, which vessel they took, and finding her loaded with nothing better than raw hides, scuttled and sank her, being then about twenty leagues from the main of Cartagena. From the captain of this vessel they learned that the plate fleet was then lying in the harbor of Portobello, not yet having set sail thence, but waiting for the change of the winds before embarking for Spain. Besides this, which was a good deal more to their purpose, the Spaniards told the pirates that the Sieur Simon, his wife, and daughter were confined aboard the vice-admiral of that fleet, and that the name of the vice-admiral was the Santa Maria y Valladolid. So soon as Captain Morgan had obtained the information he desired, he directed his course straight for the Bay of Santo Blaso where he might lie safely within the cape of that name without any danger of discovery, that part of the mainland being entirely uninhabited, and yet be within twenty or twenty-five leagues of Portobello. Having come safely to this anchorage, he had once declared his intentions to his companions, which were as follows, that it was entirely impossible for them to hope to sail their vessel into the harbor of Portobello, and to attack the Spanish vice-admiral where he lay in the midst of the armed flota. Wherefore, if anything was to be accomplished, it must be undertaken by some subtle design, rather than by open-handed boldness. Having so prefaced what he had to say, he now declared that it was his purpose to take one of the ship's boats and to go in that to Portobello, trusting for some opportunity to occur to aid him either in the accomplishment of his aims or in the gaining of some further information. Having thus delivered himself, he invited any who dared to do so to volunteer for the expedition, telling them plainly that he would constrain no man to go against his will, for that at best it was a desperate enterprise, possessing only the recommendation that in its achievement the few who undertook it would gain great renown and perhaps a very considerable booty. And such was the incredible influence of this bold man over his companions, and such was their confidence in his skill and cunning, that not above a dozen of all those aboard hung back from the undertaking, but nearly every man desired to be taken. Of these volunteers, Captain Morgan chose twenty, among others, our Master Harry and having arranged with his lieutenant that if nothing was heard from the expedition at the end of three days, he should sail for Jamaica to await news. He embarked upon that enterprise, which, though never heretofore published, was perhaps the boldest and the most desperate of all those that have since made his name so famous. For what could be a more unparalleled undertaking than for a little open boat, containing but twenty men, to enter the harbor of the third strongest fortress of the Spanish mainland with the intention of cutting out the Spanish vice-admiral from the midst of a whole fleet of powerfully armed vessels. And how many men in all the world do you suppose would venture such a thing? But there is this to be said of that great buccaneer, that if he undertook enterprises so desperate as this, he yet laid his plans so well that they never went altogether amiss. Moreover, the very desperation of his successes was of such a nature that no man could suspect that he would dare to undertake such things, and accordingly, his enemies were never prepared to guard against his attacks. Ay, had he but worn the king's colors and served under the rules of honest war, he might have become as great and as renowned as Admiral Blake himself but all that is neither here nor there. What I have to tell you now is that Captain Morgan, in this open boat with his twenty mates, reached the Cape of sal toward the fall of day. Arriving within view of the harbor, they discovered the plate fleet at anchor, with two men of war and an armed galley riding as a guard at the mouth of the harbor, scarce half a league distant from the other ships. Having spied the fleet in this posture, the pirates presently pulled down their sails and rowed along the coast, feigning to be a Spanish vessel from Nombre de Dios. So hugging the shore, they came boldly within the harbor, upon the opposite side of which you might see the fortress a considerable distance away. Being now come so near to the consummation of their adventure, Captain Morgan required every man to make an oath to stand by him to the last whereunto our hero swore as heartily as any man aboard, although his heart, I must needs confess, was beating at a great rate at the approach of what was to happen. Having thus received the oaths of all his followers, Captain Morgan commanded the surgeon of the expedition that when the order was given, he, the medico, was to bore six holes in the boat, so that, it sinking under them, they might all be compelled to push forward with no chance of retreat. And such was the ascendancy of this man over his followers, and such was their awe of him, that not one of them uttered even so much as a murmur. Though what he had commanded the surgeon to do pledged them either to victory or to death, with no chance to choose between, nor did the surgeon question the orders he had received, much less did he dream of disobeying them, By now it had fallen pretty dusk, whereupon, spying two fishermen in a canoe at a little distance, Captain Morgan demanded of them, in Spanish, which vessel of those at anchor in the harbour was the vice-admiral, for that he had dispatches for the captain thereof. Whereupon the fishermen, suspecting nothing, pointed to them a galleon of great size, riding at anchor not half a league distant." Toward this vessel accordingly the pirates directed their course, and when they had come pretty nigh, Captain Morgan called upon the surgeon that now it was time for him to perform the duty that had been laid upon him. Whereupon the other did as he was ordered, and that so thoroughly that the water presently came gushing into the boat in great streams, whereat all hands pulled for the galleon as though every next moment was to be their last. And what do you suppose were our hero's emotions at this time? Like all in the boat, his awe of Captain Morgan was so great that I do believe he would rather have gone to the bottom than have questioned his command, even when it was to scuttle the boat. Nevertheless, when he felt the cold water gushing about his feet, for he had taken off his shoes and stockings, he became possessed with such a fear of being drowned that even the Spanish galleon had no terrors for him, if he could only feel the solid planks thereof beneath his feet. Indeed, all the crew appeared to be possessed of a like dismay, for they pulled at the oars with such an incredible force that they were under the quarter of the galleon before the boat was half filled with water. Here, as they approached, it then being pretty dark, and the moon not yet having risen, the watch upon the deck hailed them, whereupon Captain Morgan called out in Spanish that he was Captain Alvarez Mendazo and that he brought dispatches for the vice-admiral. But at that moment, the boat being now so full of water as to be logged, it suddenly tilted upon one side as though to sink beneath them, whereupon all hands without further orders went scrambling up the side as nimble as so many monkeys, each armed with a pistol in one hand and a cutlass in the other, and so were upon deck before the watch could collect his wits to utter any outcry or to give any other alarm than to cry out, Yesu bless us, who are these? At which words somebody knocked him down with the butt of a pistol, though who it was our hero could not tell in the darkness and the hurry. Before any of those upon deck could recover from their alarm or those from below come up upon deck, a part of the pirates, under the carpenter and the surgeon, had run to the gun room and had taken possession of the arms, while Captain Morgan, with Master Harry and the Portuguese, called Murillo Brasiliano, had flown with the speed of the wind into the great cabin. Here they found the captain of the vice-admiral playing at cards with the Sir Simon and a friend, Madame Simon, and her daughter being present. Captain Morgan instantly set his pistol at the breast of the Spanish captain, swearing with a most horrible fierce countenance, that if he spoke a word or made any outcry, he was a dead man. As for our hero, having now got his hand into the game, he performed the same service for the Spaniard's friend, declaring he would shoot him dead if he opened his lips or lifted so much as a single finger. All this while the ladies, not comprehending what had occurred, had sat as mute as stones. But now, having so far recovered themselves as to find a voice, The younger of the two fell to screaming, at which the Sieur Simon called out to her to be still, for these were friends who had come to help them, and not enemies who had come to harm them. All this, you are to understand, occupied only a little while, for in less than a minute three or four of the pirates had come into the cabin, who, together with the Portuguese, proceeded at once to bind the two Spaniards hand and foot, and to gag them. This being done to our buccaneer's satisfaction, and the Spanish captain being stretched out in the corner of the cabin, he instantly cleared his countenance of its terrors, and bursting forth into a great loud laugh, clapped his hand to the Sieur Simons, which he rung with the best will in the world. Having done this, and being in a fine humor after this, his first success, he turned to the two ladies. And this, ladies, said he, Taking our hero by the hand and presenting him, is a young gentleman who has embarked with me to learn the trade of piracy. I recommend him to your politeness. Think what a confusion this threw our master Harry into, to be sure, who at his best was never easy in the company of strange ladies. You may suppose what must have been his emotions to find himself thus introduced to the attention of Madame Simon and her daughter being at the time in his bare feet, clad only in his shirt and breeches, and with no hat upon his head, a pistol in one hand and a cutlass in the other. However, he was not left for long to his embarrassments, for almost immediately after he had thus far relaxed, Captain Morgan fell of a sudden serious again, and bidding the Sieur Simon to get his ladies away into some place of safety, for the most hazardous part of this adventure was yet to occur, he quitted the cabin with Master Harry and the other pirates, for you may call him a pirate now, at his heels. Having come upon deck, our hero beheld that a part of the Spanish crew were huddled forward in a flock like so many sheep, the others being crowded below with the hatches fastened upon them. And such was the terror of the pirates, and so dreadful the name of Henry Morgan, that not one of those poor wretches dared to lift up his voice "'to give any alarm, "'nor even to attempt an escape "'by jumping overboard. "'At Captain Morgan's orders, "'these men, together with certain "'of his own company, ran nimbly aloft "'and began setting the sails, "'which, the night now having fallen pretty thick, "'was not for a good while observed "'by any of the vessels riding at anchor about them. "'Indeed, the pirates might have made good their escape.' with at most only a shot or two from the men of war, had it not then been about the full of the moon, which, having arisen, presently discovered to those of the fleet that lay closest about them what was being done aboard the vice-admiral. At this, one of the vessels hailed them, and then after a while, having no reply, hailed them again. Even then the Spaniards might not immediately have suspected anything was amiss, but only that the vice-admiral, for some reason best known to himself, was shifting his anchorage. Had not one of the Spaniards aloft, but who it was Captain Morgan was never able to discover, answered the hail by crying out that the vice-admiral had been seized by the pirates. At this, the alarm was instantly given, and the mischief done, for presently there was a tremendous bustle through that part of the fleet lying nighest the vice-admiral a deal of shouting of orders, a beating of drums, and the running hither and thither of the crews. But by this time, the sails of the vice-admiral had filled with a strong land breeze that was blowing up the harbour, whereupon the carpenter, at Captain Morgan's orders, having cut away both anchors, the galleon presently bore away up the harbour, gathering headway every moment with the wind nearly dead astern the nearest vessel was the only one that for the moment was able to offer any hindrance. This ship, having by this time cleared away one of its guns, was able to fire a parting shot against the vice-admiral, striking her somewhere forward, as our hero could see by the great shower of splinters that flew up in the moonlight. At the sound of the shot, all the vessels of the flota, not yet disturbed by the alarm, were aroused at once, so that the pirates had the satisfaction of knowing that they would have to run the gauntlet of all the ships between them and the open sea before they could reckon themselves escaped. And indeed, to our hero's mind, it seemed that the battle which followed must have been the most terrific cannonade that was ever heard in the world. It was not so ill at first, for it was some while before the Spaniards could get their guns clear for action they being not the least in the world prepared for such an occasion as this. But by and by first one, and then another ship, opened fire upon the galleon, until it seemed to our hero that all the thunders of heaven let loose upon them could not have created a more prodigious uproar, and that it was not possible that they could any of them escape destruction. By now the moon had risen full and round, so that the clouds of smoke that rose in the air appeared as white as snow. The air seemed full of the hiss and screaming of shot, each one of which, when it struck the galleon, was magnified by our hero's imagination into ten times its magnitude from the crash which it delivered and from the cloud of splinters it would cast up into the moonlight. At last he suddenly beheld one poor man knocked sprawling across the deck, who, as he raised his arm from behind the mast, disclosed that the hand was gone from it, "'that the shirt-sleeve was red with blood in the moonlight. "'At this sight, all the strength fell away from poor Harry, "'and he felt sure that a like fate or even a worse "'must be in store for him. "'But after all, this was nothing "'to what it might have been in broad daylight, "'for what with the darkness of night "'and the little preparation the Spaniards could make "'for such a business, "'and the extreme haste with which they discharged their guns,' many not understanding what was the occasion of all this uproar. Nearly all the shot flew so wide of the mark that not above one in twenty struck that at which it was aimed. Meantime, Captain Morgan, with the Sieur Simon, who had followed him upon deck, stood just above where our hero lay behind the shelter of the bulwark. The captain had lit a pipe of tobacco, and he stood now in the bright moonlight close to the rail, with his hands behind him, looking out ahead with the utmost coolness imaginable, and paying no more attention to the din of battle than though it were twenty leagues away. Now and then he would take his pipe from his lips to utter an order to the man at the wheel. Excepting this, he stood there, hardly moving at all, the wind blowing his long red hair over his shoulders. Had it not been for the armed galley, The pirates might have got the galleon away with no great harm done, in spite of all this cannonading, for the man of war which rode at anchor nighest to them at the mouth of the harbour, was still so far away that they might have passed it by hugging pretty close to the shore, and that without any great harm being done to them in the darkness. But just at this moment, when the open water lay in sight, came this galley pulling out from behind the point of the shore in such a manner as either to head our pirates off entirely or else to compel them to approach so near to the man of war that the latter vessel could bring its guns to bear with more effect. This galley, I must tell you, was like others of its kind, such as you may find in these waters, the hull being long and cut low to the water so as to allow the oars to dip freely. The bow was sharp and projected far out ahead, mounting a swivel upon it, while at the stern, a number of galleries built one above another into a castle gave shelter to several companies of musketeers, as well as the officers commanding them. Our hero could behold the approach of this galley from above the starboard bulwarks, and it appeared to him impossible for them to hope to escape either it or the Man of War. But still, Captain Morgan maintained the same composure that he had exhibited all the while, only now and then delivering an order to the man at the wheel, who, putting the helm over, threw the bows of the galleon around more to the larboard, as though to escape the bow of the galley and get into the open water beyond. This course brought the pirates ever closer and closer to the man of war, which now began to add its thunder to the din of the battle, and with so much more effect that at every discharge you might hear the crashing and crackling of splintering wood, and now and then the outcry or groaning of some man who was hurt. Indeed, had it been daylight, they must at this juncture all have perished, though, as was said, what with the night and the confusion and the hurry, they escaped entire destruction, though more by a miracle than through any policy upon their own part. Meantime, the galley, steering as though to come aboard of them, had now come so near that it too presently began to open its musketry fire upon them, so that the humming and rattling of bullets were presently added to the din of cannonading. In two minutes more, it would have been aboard of them, when in a moment, Captain Morgan roared out of a sudden to the man at the helm to put it hard a starboard. In response, the man ran the wheel over with the utmost quickness, and the galleon, obeying her helm very readily, came around upon a course which, if continued, would certainly bring them into collision with their enemy. It is possible at first the Spaniards imagined the pirates intended to escape past their stern, for they instantly began backing oars to keep them from getting past, so that the water was all of a foam about them. At the same time they did this, they poured in such a fire of musketry that it was a miracle that no more execution was accomplished than happened. As for our hero, methinks for the moment he forgot all about everything else than as to whether or no his captain's maneuver would succeed. For in the very first moment he divined, as by some instinct, what Captain Morgan purposed doing. At this moment, so particular in the execution of this nice design, a bullet suddenly struck down the man at the wheel. Hearing the sharp outcry, our Harry turned to see him fall forward and then to his hands and knees upon the deck, the blood running in a black pool beneath him, while the wheel, escaping from his hands, spun over until the spokes were all of a mist. In a moment, the ship would have fallen off before the wind had not our hero, leaping to the wheel, even as Captain Morgan shouted an order for someone to do so, seized the flying spokes whirling them back again, and so bringing the bow of the galleon up to its former course. In the first moment of this effort, he had reckoned of nothing but of carrying out his captain's designs. He neither thought of cannon balls nor of bullets. But now that his task was accomplished, he came suddenly back to himself to find the galleries of the galley aflame with musket shots, and to become aware with the most horrible sinking of the spirits that all the shots therefrom were intended for him. He cast his eyes about him with despair, but no one came to ease him of his task, which, having undertaken, he had too much spirit to resign from carrying through to the end, though he was well aware that the very next instant might mean his sudden and violent death. His ears hummed and rang, and his brain swam as light as a feather. I know not whether he breathed, but he shut his eyes tight, as though that might save him from the bullets that were raining about him. At this moment, the Spaniards must have discovered for the first time the pirates' design, for of a sudden they ceased firing and began to shout out a multitude of orders while the oars lashed the water all about with a foam, but it was too late then for them to escape, for within a couple of seconds the galleon struck her enemy a blow so violent upon the larboard quarter as nearly to hurl our hairy upon the deck, and then with a dreadful, horrible crackling of wood, co-mingled with a yelling of men's voices, the galley was swung around upon her side, and the galleon, sailing into the open sea, left nothing of her immediate enemy but a sinking wreck, and the water dotted all over with bobbing heads and waving hands in the moonlight. And now indeed that all danger was past and gone, there were plenty to come running to help our hero at the wheel. As for Captain Morgan, having come down upon the main deck, he fetches the young helmsman a clap upon the back. Well, Master Harry, says he, and did I not tell you I would make a man of you? Whereat our poor Harry fell a-laughing, but with a sad catch in his voice, for his hands trembled as with an ague and were as cold as ice. As for his emotions, God knows he was nearer crying than laughing, if Captain Morgan had but known it. Nevertheless, though undertaken under the spur of the moment, I protest it was indeed a brave deed, and I cannot but wonder how many young gentlemen of sixteen there are today who, upon a like occasion, would act as well as our Harry. Harry. The balance of our hero's adventures were of a lighter sort than those already recounted. For the next morning, the Spanish captain, a very polite and well-bred gentleman, having fitted him out with a shift of his own clothes, Master Harry was presented in a proper form to the ladies. For Captain Morgan, if he had felt a liking for the young man before, could not now show sufficient regard for him he ate in the great cabin, and was petted by all. Madame Simon, who was a fat and red-faced lady, was forever praising him, and the young miss, who was extremely well-looking, was as continually making eyes at him. She and Master Harry, I must tell you, would spend hours together, she making pretense of teaching him French, although he was so possessed with a passion of love that he was nigh suffocated with it. She, upon her part, perceiving his emotions, responded with extreme good nature and complacency. So that had our hero been older, and the voyage proved longer, he might have become entirely enmeshed in the toils of his fair siren. For all this while, you are to understand, the pirates were making sail straight for Jamaica, which they reached upon the third day in perfect safety. In that time, however, the pirates had well nigh gone crazy for joy. For when they came to examine their purchase, they discovered her cargo to consist of plate to the prodigious sum of one hundred thirty thousand pounds in value. It was a wonder they did not all make themselves drunk for joy. No doubt they would have done so, had not Captain Morgan, knowing they were still in the exact track of the Spanish fleet's threatened them that the first man among them who touched a drop of rum without his permission, he would shoot him dead upon the deck. This threat had such effect that they all remained entirely sober until they had reached Port Royal Harbour, which they did about nine o'clock in the morning. And now it was that our hero's romance came all tumbling down about his ears with a run. For they had hardly come to anchor in the harbour, "'when a boat came from a man of war, "'and who should come stepping aboard but Lieutenant Grantley, "'a particular friend of our hero's father, "'and his own eldest brother Thomas, "'who, putting on a very stern face, "'informed Master Harry "'that he was a desperate and hardened villain "'who was sure to end at the gallows, "'and that he was to go immediately back to his home again. "'He told our embryo pirate,' "'that his family had nigh gone distracted "'because of his wicked and ungrateful conduct. "'Nor could our hero move him "'from his inflexible purpose. "'What?' says our Harry. "'And will you not then let me wait "'until our prize is divided "'and I get my share?' "'Prize indeed,' says his brother. "'And do you then really think "'that your father would consent "'to your having a share "'in this terrible bloody "'and murdering business?' "'And so,' After a good deal of argument, our hero was constrained to go. Nor did he even have an opportunity to bid adieu to his inamorata. Nor did he see her any more, except from a distance, she standing on the poop deck as he was rowed away from her, her face all stained with crying. For himself, he felt that there was no more joy in life. Nevertheless, standing up in the stern of the boat, he made shift, though with an aching heart to deliver her a fine bow, with the hat he had borrowed from the Spanish captain, before his brother bade him sit down again. And so to the ending of this story, with only this to relate, that our master Harry, so far from going to the gallows, became in good time a respectable and wealthy sugar merchant, with an English wife and a fine family of children, whereunto, when the mood was upon him, Yet sometimes told these adventures, and sundry others not here recount it, as I have told them unto you. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of With the Buccaneers by Howard Pyle. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off anything in the store. Give more and you get more. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper.